When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Monday edition of the Orange Brown Talk podcast. Dan Lobby with Mary Kay Cabot. Hey, Mary Kay edition. It is finally draft week, Mary Kay. It has arrived. Of course, Browns fans have to wait a little bit longer this year. They do not go on the clock until the third round on Friday. So um, it's going to be a little while before the Browns make a pick. But of course, we got lots of questions from our football insider subscribers leading up to the draft. And let's just start here. Paxton Styles from Chevrolet, Maryland. Hey, Mary Kay, the first question I ever asked you last June was how much Kevin Stefanski's future was tied to Deshaun Watson's success over the next three years and if the Haslams would show patience. Your answer, I believe, was the Haslams are committed to Stefanski and it wouldn't affect his future that much. Do you feel that has changed? And if so, why? You know what? I mean, I do think that he's got to demonstrate that he can call plays for Deshaun Watson and that he can bring out the best in Deshaun. So... You know, I probably feel a little bit more strongly about that this year than I did last year in looking ahead because now everything is in place. And if it doesn't go well, who are you going to look to? I mean, they're not going to be canceling Deshaun Watson. That's not happening. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, he's got to prove that that he's got what it takes to maximize the talents and abilities of a dual threat quarterback who has no limitations in his arm talent whatsoever. They've given him a really good supporting cast and uh, you know, they've done everything that they can to help Deshaun be successful, including upgrading the entire defense this year. So I would say that, you know, that the pressure is more on Kevin Stefanski now than it was before. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned this before when you spend that much money on a quarterback and, and you've got a head coach who is an offensive head coach, um, he's he's got to deliver. He's got to help make that quarterback reach his his full potential. And if Kevin Stefanski, if there's questions about that with Kevin Stefanski after this season, um, that that's going to affect his future long term. One one way or another. It doesn't mean he, he'll get fired necessarily after the season unless the performance just bottoms out. But um, it, it certainly would raise questions if he if it kind of seems like he might not be the right guy for Deshaun. Yeah, and you know, I sat there talking to Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam at the NFL annual meeting in Phoenix last month. And I will I will tell you what, I mean, they really kind of gave me the feeling that playoffs are the expectation this year and that the bar is set very high and they are not going to be very patient. Again, it doesn't mean that Kevin Stefanski is going to get fired, but there will have to be plenty of explaining to do if this team doesn't make the playoffs this year. And it, it's year four. I mean, let's just remember that it's year four. They, you know, they've made the playoffs one time. They they won a playoff game, but that, that only carries you so far. You know, you have to start judging this based at some point. You got to judge this based on wins and losses. And the last two years, that certainly hasn't been the case for whatever reason. But now, like, like you got to start winning at some point, And here you are in year four. You, you got to have some wins to show for all of this. 
Yeah, you really do. And, you know, there are so many players that are in the prime of their career. And so there's, you know, there's really no excuse this year. Something's going gravely wrong if you are not making a strong run at the playoffs. Now, uh, it's, it's not, you know, we must remember that the Browns play in a very difficult division. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. And if Lamar Jackson is back in Baltimore, I mean, really, are the Bengals, the Ravens, and the Browns going to make it out? I mean, you can't even count out the Steelers these days. So it's going to be incredibly tough because those teams are going to have a tendency to, you know, cancel each other out a little bit towards the end of the season. However, having said that, you know, this team was built and Deshaun Watson was acquired to beat the Joe Burrows, to beat the Lamar Jacksons. That's why they have Miles Garrett and they're paying him you know, double digit 20 some millions this year in terms of a, a cap charge. Uh, that's why they're paying Denzel Ward $20.1 million a year. That's why pay, they're paying Amari Cooper almost $24 million in a cap charge this year. And the guards and everyone else, they have shelled out big money to get to the promised land and it won't be taken lightly if they don't get there. Okay, a question about the draft. This is a long one from uh, Joe in London, Ohio. Uh, Hey, Mary Kay, with it being draft week, it's hard not to place a ton of emphasis on how well a GM drafts. It feels like most fans' expectations of their GM's drafting ability sky high or dependent on one one or two first-round picks panned out. Uh, He goes on to say that it seems like, you know, most GM's you know, we'll hit every once in a while. He cites John Schneider, who hit on the Legion of Boom picks. Then it was sort of up and down, and, and now they seem to have hit again. Uh, the, the question here, though, that he's getting to is, uh, hey, Mary Kay, how much of a GM's success should be tied to their drafting, and how much of it is tied to other things? You know what? I, I think it should be tied to other things. I mean, look at the Rams, okay? They are not putting a whole bunch of stock into the draft, But if you win a Super Bowl, nobody's going to ask too many questions about how you got there and where you got your players, how you acquired them. You know, it seems to me, for the most part, that where the Browns are right now in terms of, you know, this moment in time, they're using the draft as their, you know, as their farm system. They're using their draft to have a pipeline of players for down the road for the most part. And what they're doing is they're using free agency and trades a lot to, uh, you know, to get the talent that they need. They're letting, uh, you know, other teams have, you know, like really made these players successful and then they're buying them or trading for them or whatever the case may be. And so I don't think you can just be judged on your drafting alone as a GM. When you look at this roster, you can see that there will probably be some Pro Bowl players this year that, uh, you know, that didn't necessarily come from, Andrew Barry's drafts. But if you trade for an Amari Cooper and he makes the Pro Bowl, then that, you know, that counts against you acquiring a Pro Bowl player or acquiring and helping to develop a Pro Bowl player. If Deshaun Watson makes the Pro Bowl, well, you know, that was your first round pick for three straight years. So does that mean that, that, you know, that should be a knock against you? Or did you just do a good job uh, in trading away those picks and acquiring an elite quarterback? Uh, you know, same thing with, with some other players. If Elijah Moore happens to make the Pro Bowl this year, that's kind of your second round pick from this year. What did you do? You moved back 32 spots from 42 to 74, and you ended up with potentially, potentially a Pro Bowl player over the next couple of years. So I don't think you should be judged on your drafts alone. I think it should be 
globally your player acquisition skills. Yeah, it's about the team build as a whole. And, and there's various <laughs> levels to that. And, you know, in the case of Andrew Barry, he, you know, we're going through a phase right now where his picks are, we're talking third rounders for uh, for his top picks. You know, we're not talking first and second rounders outside of obviously a Greg Newsom, JOK, those, those picks. But, you know, we're going into a draft where his first pick is going to be at 74. And the reality is once you get outside out of that first round, who knows? I mean, if you're hitting at 50%, that that's pretty great. So, you know, you're going to miss, like even you, you pick the best GM and you go through their draft history, especially third, fourth, fifth rounders, you're going to see names that you don't even remember existed. But if you can find that those one or two like diamonds in the rough each year, that, that can kind of make or break how your drafts look. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, 2022 and 2023, the drafts because of the Deshaun Watson trade and other moves. Um, the, these drafts started for them in the third round. Now, generally, when you get to the third round, you're hoping that you get guys that will be able to contribute for you on a rotational basis or become starters in a couple of years. And you're not necessarily hoping uh, to find or counting on finding your Pro Bowl players in the third round and beyond where you find the Pro Bowl caliber players usually is in the first and second round. Well, they don't, they haven't had a first and second rounder in the last couple of years, but I think it is time to start looking at the first and second rounders from previous years to see what the situation is going to be there, right? So if you look at Jed Wills, if you look at Grant Delpit, if you look at Greg Newsom, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Those are the players uh, that you are going to be expecting uh, should be in a Pro Bowl sometime soon. That's what you want to be doing. You want to be acquiring, drafting those really high-quality, high-caliber players in those first two rounds. So the jury is still out on some of those guys. Let's see what happens over the next two years. Okay, so that's a nice lead into this next question from Tom in Middlebury, Connecticut. Hey, Mary Kay, given the emphasis the Browns place on player development with draft picks, how do you grade this leadership team to date only on the draft? How many years do you give a player before acknowledging it did or didn't work? Well, you know, like I said, I I think it's hard to judge this group on the draft alone when they are spending some of their top picks uh, to get an elite quarterback, to get an elite receiver or what they hope will be an elite receiver um, and, you know, some mid-round picks, a fifth-round pick for Amari Cooper. I mean, that that's a great trade right there. Uh, so when you look at the offense heading into this season, you can see that three of the top players are, are coming via trade, Deshaun, Elijah, and Amari Cooper. So once again, it, it's, it would be really hard to compare – Andrew Barry from a draft standpoint to somebody who's keeping those first and second round picks and making those picks. But having said that, I think um, three years should tell you about what you need to know about a draft pick. In some cases, it's a little harder than others. It's difficult to grade Grant Delpit uh, as uh, you know what he was supposed to be because he ruptured his Achilles tendon in the first year. So that makes it really, really tough. Uh, you know, to figure out who he is and what he is. Third round pick, Jacob Phillips. Very difficult to see what he could have been or what he would be uh, because he suffered a torn biceps one year and a torn pec the next year. 
So, you know, these, these things kind of have to be factored into the equation, but certainly I would say that with the number 10 overall pick with Jed Wills, you're hoping that that guy is trending towards a pro bowl by his third year. And if he's not, you know, then you just have to kind of look at it realistically and ask yourself, you know, did, you know, did we make the right pick there? Did we not make the right pick? Um, and, you know, if you didn't, can this player be a serviceable, high quality left tackle for you uh, for eight, nine years, even if, if he doesn't make the Pro Bowl? I mean, you want number 10 overall to be a Pro Bowler. And so far, he hasn't established himself as that. Uh, he also had an extenuating circumstance where he was moving from one side over to the other, played right tackle in college for a left handed quarterback and then had to move over to the left. So that was a projection, and it's a difficult move to make. Um, but so I think after three years, you kind of want to know. I mean, it's going to be time really soon to see if Greg Newsom is a Pro Bowl caliber cornerback. And they also had a first-round grade on Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Is he a Pro Bowl caliber linebacker? It looked like it was trending that way. You know, in the, you know his his rookie year, it looks like that's the way that it was headed. But then he also had some extenuating circumstances. He, uh, you know, went through a tragedy lot last off season where, uh, you know, his his brother, who's practically almost a, a twin to him, they're so close in age and they were so close in every other way, was murdered last off season, and that had a huge, profound impact on Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. And then he spent uh, the last part of the season on injured reserve with a midfoot sprain. Now we have to see how he comes back from that. Can he get back to the level uh, that everyone knows he can play at? If so, then he should have some Pro Bowl potential. So there are candidates there that have the potential. They just haven't realized that potential yet. Yeah, I think year three is is the key year. I, I want to know what a player is. So I'm I'm with you on that. I want to come away from year three, like knowing, okay, this is at least what I think this player's floor is. I think Donovan Peoples-Jones is a good example of that. I, you know, I think we know, and, and that's the sixth round pick. It feels like you already hit on that pick, no matter what happens from here on out, because of what he's given you. But like, I want to know who this player is, like at, at the very least, like what we saw last year from Donovan Peoples-Jones. That's a pretty good floor. I'll take that. Um, and, and I don't know if we know exactly what Jed Wills is as, as a left tackle, which is a little frustrating. And, uh, you know, obviously with JOK and Greg Newsom, this is a very important season for both of those players as far as their roles and, and what they can become. So, yeah, I think year three is is always the key year. And it doesn't mean that, you know, Jed Wills can't come out this year and establish himself as like the guy at left tackle long term. But, um it's it's just disappointing that you know it seems like they are maybe a little higher on him than people on the outside but it's just disappointing that we aren't 100% sure what Jed Wills is at this point yeah fortunately for Jed um he has Bill Callahan so Bill Callahan is going to get the most out of Jed and he will keep coming up that learning curve i think um you know with Bill coaching him so that you know that should really help him and again, as you mentioned, the team is pretty high on Jed. Sometimes when you look at those PFF grades, those grades are not necessarily accurate or they don't necessarily equal what the team feels about the player. And Jed hasn't traditionally graded out really well in terms of the PFF rankings. 
but the Browns, you know, I've been saying this over and over and over again. They will pick up the fifth year option. That's going to happen by sometime between now and May 2nd. I don't know if they'll get it done before the draft, which begins on Thursday, or if they'll wait and they'll get it done afterwards, but that's going to happen. I mean, you're going to pay your left tackle 14.17 or $125 million or whatever it is by um, in 2024. That's not, you know, off the charts. That's what you, uh, you know, would pay for a good left tackle. Even if you had to go out and get one in free agency, that's the amount you're going to pay for that. So they'll do that. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it would be nice for them and a feather in their cap if they could um, find some pro bowlers amongst these higher picks. And I will say real quick that, you know, they, they do a nice job you know, in the sixth and seventh round, I mean, you're finding the Donovan Peoples Joneses and you're finding the Michael Woods and you're finding the Isaiah Thomases. Uh, but you want to make sure that you are getting some pro bowlers out of your first round picks. Okay. Another draft question here. This comes from Daniel in Moreland Hills. Hey, Mary Kay, about the only sure thing is that the Browns will not use all their draft picks as actual picks this year. What is more likely bundling several picks to move up this year or kicking the can and swapping for mostly equivalent picks in 2024 and beyond? Well, you know, it's it's always nice to move some of those picks out to next year if you can do it, because, you know, once again, then you keep the pipeline going. They have eight picks this year. Um, you know, they probably don't really need eight rookies coming in here trying to make the team. So if you can kick the can down the road a little bit on a few of those picks, I mean, they've got two in the third, two in the fourth, two in the fifth. Uh, I, I expect to see some bundling. I accept, I expect to see some moving back, moving up. Um, I, I do think that they will move around with some of those uh, six picks in particular. You know, maybe they'll try to get out of the seventh round. I don't think this regime loves to make picks in the seventh round if they can avoid it. You know, because you know you can just get those guys, some of those guys as uh, undrafted rookies. So, um, yeah, I think there will be some wheeling and dealing Maybe it will involve packaging some things and moving up a little bit. Maybe they'll try to get up into the second round if they really like something. Maybe they'll move back. Uh, but they have plenty of flexibility with, with with these picks. And Andrew likes to make trades. Yes, he does, especially draft day trades. He loves it. Um, so, yeah, I've, I would be a little surprised if they make eight picks this weekend. But you, you never know. He, he certainly didn't rule it out last week when we talked to him. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we've got some more questions from our Football Insider subscribers on the Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. And back on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, Dan Lobby, Mary Kay Cabot, our Hey Mary Kay edition of the podcast here on Draft Week. Wes in Greenboro. Hey Mary Kay, I bet leading up to the draft and draft week is crazy for you all. So, what is your favorite part of draft week to cover? And what are you looking forward to doing once the draft is over? And of course, this is an interesting question because draft week is very different for us these these last few years. It sort of sneaks up on us now, which was certainly not the case you know, all those years when they were looking for quarterbacks and, and even the year that they drafted Jed Wills, all that stuff. Um, it, it never snuck up on you. But favorite part of draft week? Well, I'll tell you what, it is so vastly different than it has been in the past when you're trying to figure out who they're going to take number one overall. Draft week in those years, uh, just like it was for the fans, was so much more exciting for us. I mean, I remember just in 2018 alone, really trying hard to figure out and just spending the whole week trying to figure out, are they going to take Baker Mayfield 
or are they going to surprise people and take Josh Allen, who, of course, I thought they they should take. And I really thought that there was a chance that that they might surprise people and go with Josh Allen, who was sort of a he had boomer bust potential. People had no idea if he was going to be an accurate NFL quarterback. So I spent a lot of time that week calling people, calling around, talking to, you know, scouts in the league, talking to, uh, you know, Josh Allen's people, talking to Baker Mayfield's people to see if they were getting a handle on it. Uh, you know, just doing everything that I possibly could, working those phones, working those phones. And that's just not happening this year. You don't work the phones to figure out what happens at number 74. I mean, you just don't. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing anyone is going to be able to tell you about, you know, where they're going. So you can pick up clues about guys that they might like by kind of looking at, uh, you know, players that they have brought in for their top 30 visits, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Sometimes they don't bring a guy in uh, that they want to draft because it's gamesmanship. They don't want to want people to know that they're interested in that particular player. Uh, so sometimes they'll stay away from the top 30 visit and, you know, they will have done their due diligence by going to pro days and by talking to these players at the senior bowl and by talking to them at the NFL combine. But you try to pick up little clues here and there and you do the best you possibly can. Um, but I just have to say, and I know Dan agrees with me and I know Ashley agrees with me on this. It just doesn't have, it just doesn't pack the same wallop when your first pick is number 74 overall, as opposed to number one or number 10 or even number 26. Yeah. It's a lot of sitting around and, and waiting. Um, and I'll admit, I kind of, I kind of think the draft is boring. I don't, I don't understand why so many people sit and watch the draft. I mean, I guess I do, but uh, I always think it's kind of boring to just sit there and watch it. But um, I will say there is a little bit of a rush, even when it's at 74, when the Brown, whenever the Browns go on the clock, there's a little bit of a rush. Like, all right, now it's, now it's time to lock in. Now it's go time. Um, but yeah, the, the last couple of years, it's very much been like, all right, we're just sitting here and watching other teams do things and, you know, we'll react to that and write off of that. But, um, the, the draft itself is that there, there is something every year, no matter where the pick is, even when it's the seventh round, you know, we're sitting there on Saturday and the Browns go on the clock in the seventh round. And it's like, all right, it's go time. They're about to make a pick. Let's, let's get, and then we get to talk to them for the first time and all of that. So, um, that, that's the stuff that's, that's fun about covering the draft. Yeah. And then, you know, then you have a, um, you know, then you have a draft day press conference like Perry on Winfrey delivered last year. So you never really know what you're going to get. Those draft day phone calls are uh, really, really interesting. You can have guys that are, you know, really quiet. You can have guys, you know, that don't say much. Then you can have a guy that just comes in like a wrecking ball, like Perry on Winfrey did. And, um, you know, and, you know, and anything can happen. Of course we will, you know, we may look back on that, um, you know, on that interview someday and, and, you know, and think it was sort of a harbinger of, of things to come. But, um, but anyways, so, um, yeah, it's, it's usually a very, very exciting week and it, it is to a degree, but we are not even going out to Berea on Thursday night. You know, I mean, I, I'm, we don't have the whole schedule yet, but I don't think we will be out there. I don't think we're going out there until Friday. And of course we go there instead of going out, going to Kansas city, because all of the Browns um, personnel people remain in Berea. That's where their war room is. That's where the coaches are. So we are in the media room in Berea 
uh, when they make their picks and then they come down at certain points and talk to us about those picks. And that's where we do uh, those press conferences, those phone initial interviews with the draft picks is with us all sitting in that media room there. Um, So, you know, it's exciting to a certain degree, but certainly not like it is for a lot of other teams this week. Yeah, I think that's one of the things just in talking to people like who are asking me like, oh, so so what are you doing this week? I don't think they realize like we're actually just sitting around watching the draft like you all are. We're just we're watching it on TV. It's just we're going to be in Berea watching it all together on TV and then we'll get some opportunities to talk to to Browns personnel folks and, and talk to the picks. But the draft itself, we're not in Kansas City. We're sitting around in Berea watching the draft the same as the same as everyone else. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of those things that. Uh, it get, gets brought up on occasion. Um, people, I think, expect us to be like in Kansas City, but there isn't a lot of value to, to that for us. We, we need to be where Andrew Barry is and where Kevin Stefanski is, and they're, they're all in Berea. Okay, a question here from the 949 area code. Does Bubba Ventrone keep a separate draft list for special teams? If so, is it always linebackers and DBs and maybe a wide receiver? And this uh, person also brings up the possibility of drafting a returner. And I thought about this question, Mary Ken. I thought about something Andrew Barry said last week um, about what he looks for in fourth, fifth, sixth round picks, right? He's looking for traits. And that sort of actually screams like those are the guys where Bubba Ventrone is going to get some of his core special teamers, those day three picks who come in and the way that they're going to make the roster and kind of make a name for themselves is to be a gunner or to be a returner or whatever it might be. So uh, how much, how much influence do you think Bubba has on the draft process? You know, I think he will have a significant say in the draft process. Again, especially as you get to those later round picks and as you get to those undrafted rookies and whatnot, because I mean, they really need their special teams to be uh, an asset this year instead of a liability. And, you know, he's going to need a little bit of help. And this is the place where uh, he can make a little bit of hay. The other thing is, I think you want to be very welcoming to your new coordinators. So I think you want Jim Schwartz to know that you value his input on the defensive players. I think you want uh, Bubba Ventrone to know that you value his input on the special teams guys. So I think uh, that there usually are a couple of guys that are sort of designated as special teamers, the way that Mike Ford is, uh, you know, the free agent that they sign, the cornerback. He is uh, mostly a special teamer, and you need to have a couple of those other guys that you can maybe find in the draft or as undrafted rookies. So I, you know, I'm sure he does have a list of guys that he really likes. And when it comes time to, uh, you know, to make some of those later round picks, I think they will try to make him happy with some of those. I think he will have some input. Now, most of it is going to fall upon your personnel staff and because they are the ones that are really, watching the film and doing their due diligence and grading and ranking these guys. Um, But it is a chance to, um, you know, to kind of make your new coordinators feel very involved in this process. Okay. There are a lot of answers to this next question. Russ from Appalachian, Ohio. Hey, Mary Kay, excluding Baker, who is the Browns worst selection in the first two to three rounds of the last several drafts. I don't know how far back he wants us to go when he says last several drafts, but I think we can throw this open uh, long-term. 
the Browns' worst selection in the first two to three rounds. We could do like a draft of just bad draft picks that, that the Browns have made since 1999. That's that's how many we there should, have been. We should do that. That that would be funny. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> we should think about that uh, this week. We could have a little bit of fun with that. Um, but you know, you got to go with Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel. I mean, my goodness, that was such a bad bad draft you know for those guys to come in here uh, they did not know what they were doing that year at, at all I mean it was just an embarrassment there's no way you can ju- do your due diligence thoroughly and end up with those two guys I mean you just can't both of them came in with major off the field issues and both of them were a train wreck and a, and a disaster right from the start and somebody should have known that um you know, Ray Farmer was in charge back then. He was in over his head, not ready to be doing that job. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because those kinds of things can change the fortunes of a franchise when you're drafting uh, multiple first round picks and you are blowing them. Right. I mean, there's just, you know, there's just no way. Um, Danny Shelton, you know, was another one that comes to mind. Um, they had extremely high hopes for him. Uh, but I mean the, the juvenile Jays, or as Joe Thomas calls them, the jackass Jays, you know, that was a, that, that was a, that was a really, really bad year. Can you think of some others, Dan, that jump, jump out? Uh, oh, Barkevius Mingo. I mean, how about Barkevius Mingo? Yeah. Um, Corey Coleman. Corey Coleman. Yeah. That was a bad one. Uh, but I'm just, yeah, this 2014 draft, it's so weird right they they of course had the number four pick and they traded it down and then you see khalil mack go number five mike evans mm-hmm. go number seven and then when the browns go back on the clock at eight these are the picks that went just after them anthony barr at nine uh taylor lewan went 11 obviously they had a, a pretty good left tackle in joe thomas already but odell went 12 aaron donald went 13 um it's it's amazing like the players that they just didn't take they could have made that so easy. But then on top of that, you throw in the fact that they turned around and drafted Joel Batonio in the second round and Christian Kirksey in the third round. You had a chance to have a really great draft if you would have just hit those first round picks and they just they just completely in, in a draft that was full of talent. And also, by the way, had Derek Carr, who went after you picked Johnny Manziel. It's so easy to look back at that draft specifically and map out how it would have been a home run. And this team is a pretty good football team for the next four or five years. Yeah. I mean, that draft alone would be a great podcast. We should, we should seriously think about uh, taking a look back at that draft and just how horrible it was and how it, it impacted so many things. I mean, Really, if you know, if if you get that draft right, I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe Kyle Shanahan ends up sticking around here and becomes a great coach for the Cleveland Browns at some point. So, it, I think it'd be cool to take a look at uh, the impact that draft had on the next three or four years of the Cleveland Browns and all the spinoff things that happened, and all the the guys like you said right there that that didn't end up here that could have, and the ones that did end up here. Uh, and, and how that, you know, negatively impacted the franchise with firings and, and all, all those kinds of things. It, it was pretty bizarre. We should take a, we should take a deep dive into 2014. 
Yeah, such a strange draft. And then, yeah, the, the Corey Coleman draft was a disaster. Um, it just uh, And also, you know, we can throw out them not making the pick at number 12 in 2017 when you could have we, – we talk about franchise-altering drafts. If you come away from that draft with Miles Garrett and Deshaun Watson in 2017, a lot of people don't lose jobs. And <laughs> now, obviously – the irony of that is, you know, six years later, you have Miles Garrett and Deshaun Watson, but it's just a very different, uh, they're, they're both a lot more expensive and, um, you, you kind of lost those years that those two could have had together, uh, just would have accelerated where this franchise was. And instead they traded out of that number 12 pick. And of course, then there's also the Patrick Mahomes angle of, of that whole draft. Yeah. I mean, there are so many, I mean, there are so, we really should take a deep dive into some of the um, you know, some of the colossal screw ups that have gone on with this franchise uh, with their top picks going back to, I mean, you could almost just go back to, to from 2014 to now uh, and, and find uh, plenty of fodder there. But, um, but the, um, you know, the, the Deshaun Watson pick at number 12 there, first of all, they, they just did not evaluate him properly. They just didn't have any consensus in the franchise on quarterbacks that year. They had Mitch Trubisky ranked as their top quarterback in that draft. They didn't know what Patrick Mahomes was. They really didn't know what Deshaun Watson was. Um, and in order to actually get him now, they had to give up three first-round picks. Now, the, the odd part about that that you would have to include in any type of an evaluation of that one is look what happened to him in Houston and would all of that hap- have happened here? Um, so there's that. And then, you know, back in some of those years, including that year, you know, they just weren't set up coach front office wise to be successful and to support a young quarterback. They were not in alignment front office and coaching wise. So it might have not mattered if you had drafted um, any of these guys. It might not have mattered if you had drafted Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Josh Allen, Uh, because if you can't coach them and you can't support them, then, then they're not going to be all that they can be. I mean, Patrick Mahomes constantly talks about the impact of being with Andy Reid. Josh Allen had, Brian Dayball, you know, would that have happened here? You know, we, we just, we just don't know. A lot of drafts. Uh, to, there, there were a lot of options for that question. Um, the, the just, wow, really, really bad drafts. So I, I think, well, I mean, you know, the thing about Andrew Barry is, you know, we can certainly, and I think fairly question some of the picks he's made, but also at, at the very least, like Greg Newsom is a guy that can play for you. Jeremiah Usakoromoa is is a guy that that can play on your defense. And Jedrick Wills, you know, we'll see. But at least he's been your left tackle now for this is going to be his fourth year in that spot. So um, at, at least he's drafted guys that can get on the field and be productive players on what we think is a pretty good football team. So that's that's a step forward from when you're drafting Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel, for ex- for example. Yeah, I mean, to go, uh, you know, out there and select absolute complete busts when you had the opportunity to draft like superstars in some cases and you didn't see it, you didn't know it. Um, you know, they've come a long way since those days where they were drafting complete and total busts. But it wasn't that long ago 
that they were, that they were doing that. Um, and, you know, I will always, always look to the Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen screw up. Uh, that that's one in my mind where uh, I just don't think that there was really any excuse for that. Uh, the signs were even there with Baker Mayfield off the, all the signs were there that he had off the field issues, right? I mean, there was a video out there of him running away from a, a cop and, you know, and getting arrested. So there, you know, there were signs there that there were going to be issues with him. There were many, many, many signs of how he treated coaches. And then we saw that play out, um, how he treated coaches in college is what I meant. And, um, so, you know, that one, and that falls on John Dorsey, that, that one falls on John Dorsey. So, yeah, I mean, and that wasn't that long ago and that impacted the franchise significantly to the point where you had to give up three first round picks and go out and get Deshaun Watson. So, yeah, I think, uh, we've got, we've got some good podcast fodder here. Right. And it speaks to just how, like how close you can come to having like a home run draft and it, yeah. end up not I mean if he would have taken Josh Allen and Denzel Ward and Nick Chubb and even Austin Corbett has become a guy that at least can play you know if but yeah. if he would have taken those three Allen Chubb and Ward that's a home run draft but instead you mess up that quarterback and and we yeah. see the the ripple effects that it's had uh okay that'll do it for this edition of the orange and brown talk podcast the hey mary cage we've got a full week of pods coming your way to get you ready for the draft including a full first round mock that's going to post at some point on tuesday uh we'll have tim and lance and me we'll get together and we'll do uh, our kind of final draft pod on thursday and then of course we'll have pods reacting to what happens during the draft all throughout the weekend so uh, just make sure you're subscribed to orange brown talk podcast search that on apple podcast or spotify and hit subscribe and also become a football insider subscriber this is a great week to get started Cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page to get a newsletter delivered to your inbox every day. Access to exclusive stories on Cleveland.com slash Browns and become one of our texters. Uh, Mary Kay, I'll talk to you later. Sounds great. Sounds great.